The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I consider our most valuable asset, our human capital. And today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, all the way from the Slovene Alps, Nadia Zekembaya. We'll be discussing her new book, Overfished Ocean Strategy, Powering Up Innovation for a Resource-Deprived World. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Nadia. She is a business owner, author, and educator working at the intersection of innovation, leadership, and sustainable growth. As a business owner, Nadia oversees a group of companies active in real estate, investment, and consulting. And she teaches courses in leadership, strategy, change management, design thinking, and sustainability at business schools across the globe. Nadia sits on the advisory board of the Fowler Center for Sustainable Value at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western University. And in 2014, Nadia released her second book and the topic of today's show, Overfished Ocean Strategy, Powering Up Innovation for a resource-deprived world. In 2011, she co-authored her first book, Embedded Sustainability, The Next Big Competitive Advantage. Great books. So, Nadia, welcome to Quantum Business Insight. Thank you so much for having me, Olivia. It's my pleasure. Oh, thank you. So, on your website, overfishedoceanstrategy.com, you say, quote, we live amidst remarkable, though largely undetected, transformation. So what do you see as changing and why do you think it's largely undetected? Mm. Well, that's probably the essence of uh, the last few years of work, both in business and in research and writing. So I'll try to be as precise as possible. I've been um, working in different industry um, industries of different kind recently a lot in mining and um, at the same time had a chance to think a little bit about this concept of sustainability which is uh, extremely controversial if you ask a group of businessmen or politician or media or academics what is sustainability every single person will give you a different answer hmm. for some people that would be about um, energy for some people, that would be about philanthropy. For some people, it would be about resources. 
climate change, and the list goes on and on and on. And when I started um, looking a bit deeper on what are these different symptoms and what is the underlying problem under uh, all of the common symptoms, it became quite clear that um, you can connect all of them to one big transformation that has to do with what's going on with our economy. So if we were to imagine our global economy, it would be in a very simple form. Um, would be easy to draw a long, long line. Mm. So on one side of the line would be all of the industries that take something out of the earth, mining being one of them, but also agriculture, also fishing, um, every form of business that takes things out of the earth. Mm. And then along the line, there are all kinds of industries that are processing these raw materials and passing them on. And at the very end of the line would be waste management companies that manage the vast landfills and all the service companies supporting this linear economy along the way. So what is the transformation about? In the very simple terms, uh, we are running out of things to mine and we are running out of places to trash. And every other problem we call sustainability problem stems from this basic underlying reality. Well, and you can I just say, you mentioned sure. landfills, but there's also the ocean is taking a lot of this waste. Is that sure. Right? Yeah. Sure. So when we're talking about waste, we're also talking about every part of the earth that accepts portion of our waste. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Uh, when we're talking about oceans, we see huge um, pieces of research, huge efforts to figure out how much exactly oceans we have uh, wasted or filled with uh, plastic, filled with every other kind of chemical. I remember there was a, a statistic a few years ago that when we drag um, our Pacific gyra for plankton, we get out six times more plastic than plankton. Ooh. And every time I would mention that, people would be gasping. But the unfortunate news that I saw only about a month ago in the recent research is that recently scientists cannot find all that plastic. And when they were trying to figure out where is it, uh, they discovered that it's largely eaten by oh. the fish. They cannot digest it. They cannot uh, produce any useful part of their own body or any other food chain. So we end up eating that plastic as well, which is even more of a problem than we thought before. So oh. absolutely, absolutely right on the mining oceans and every other forms, um, um, our underground water streams and on and on. Yeah. So, so yeah, go could, ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, so you say it's not detected. I'd love to know. Why yeah, that is. The, yeah. the undetected part that was the surprising part for me um, as a person working in business and as a person trained um, in economic theory. So if you think about the classic economic theory, it's assumed that when uh, we have abundance of resources or we have abundance of a product on the market, um, at that point, the price will start falling down. The classic macroeconomic drawings um, that are taught in uh, economics one-on-one in any university will draw this mm -hmm. corresponding lines for you. So when there's a lot of resource, we usually get a um, very cheap price for that 
percent when they're less and less of resource um, the price for that resource is usually going up well the surprising part and i truly believe it's the reason why this is largely undetected is that for the most of 20th century that basic macroeconomic law was not working for the most of 20th century we've been using more and more of the global resources of the earth. Uh, McKinsey shows that in some cases, this more and more went as far as 2,000% more. So recently McKinsey was publishing that during the 20th century, our global population quadrupled, our global economic output increased by about 20-fold, and the jump in demand of our resources uh, went between 600 and 2,000 percent depending on the resource. Wow. So macroeconomic theory will tell us that when we have more and more demand for resource and a limited resource because we only have one planet and only <laughs> this, much, this much of any resource, right. uh, the price for a resource should go up and up and up. Mm-hmm. But due to different um, uh, political changes and different speed of use of different resources in different countries, we end up in a reality where absolute majority of resources throughout 20th century were falling in prices. So the overall overall index of the um, commodity prices, if we would take the average of what's happening, um, it was falling, and in the uh, course of 20th century, particular one index that measures, MGI index, the price of key resources fell in almost half in real times. So we were using 2,000 times, uh, 2,000% more resources, and the prices fell half in real times, which is a macroeconomic paradox, but that gave our businesses an illusion that every Everything that scientists would tell us, and they've been doing this since ancient times, Thomas Malthus did it in the 18th century, most recently Club of Rome did it in the 1970s when they published their Limits to Growth report. So many times scientists would say, oh, oh, we will run out of resources very soon. The market was showing a completely different picture to the businesses, and the businesses assumed that this will be going on indefinitely that the prices on commodities will keep falling down. And our growth theories, our assumptions that the company will grow every year and should grow every year um, in terms of the economic output, all are built on the assumption that the prices of commodities will keep falling down, which is already proven to be untrue. So just the first... Do we know why? Why they weren't falling? Have they been artificially manipulated? Uh, not necessarily. So um, one of the biggest reasons that I've seen so far, and there are different theories around this, is mainly unevenness of development of the world. So uh, if we had one fair, transparent global market, um, we could see, and that's of course speculation, but it's much easier to see a more fair and more predictable behavior of prices. But in the 20th century, most of our countries were in a completely different state. So midway through the century, uh, after two horrendous wars, most of the countries, um, 
African and Asian were still colonies. <laughs> so right. there are uh, significant restrictions on what any country could do with that prices. So when the country that is rich in resources would get an opportunity to start selling their resources directly as a new independent state, very often due to corruption practices and other reasons, mm-hmm. that resource would be uh, pushed onto the market with artificially decreased prices. So, yeah. Well, and I fear that's going to happen or is happening in Africa. Is that kind of the new frontier for this, do you think? Um, I can see even from the personal experience that even in the last decade, so already 21st century, there were a number of extremely high-profile cases where a government would make a deal Mm-hmm. That is significantly underpricing the price of the or the value of the resource. Mm-hmm. So we definitely still see that happening, although of course on a much smaller scale and with much more transparency. So at least you can oh. track. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really um, good to know that it's, it's <laughs> decreasing. <laughs> it's definitely decreasing. So uh, everywhere I sit in any board. Everyone says the time of uh, cheap money and free money and quick flips um, are over. It's getting harder and harder to make money and to expect anything in double-digit margins, which I think is a is a much closer to reality of the planet than we've been in the last 50 years, for sure. Well, statistically, we're also beginning to see that. So um, we see that in the first 10 years of the 21st century. So the f- last 100 years, the prices have been falling and fell in real times by half. In only the first decade of the 21st century, the real commodity prices already increased 147%. Oh. And we're predicting a much higher jump. But coming back to your question on why is it undetected, for businesses, this is, this is interpreted as a short-lived crisis, post-crisis jump that we will survive and then business will go back to normal. And um, the good news or bad news is that it won't. <laughs> yes. this, is, this is just basic macroeconomics. This is this much resource that we have and we have mined a huge percentage of it already. There's, um, there's absolutely nothing we can do to get more resources into the ground, whether it's forest whether it's well, whether it's nutritional value of our food, um, whether it's clean, um, unsalted water, whatever resource you take, uh, and then of course more complex resources such as stable climate or uh, social equity and social stability. All of those as resources are definitely um, limiting, or in one in other way inspiring different forms of businesses. I've been talking nonstop, so. That's great. No, and we have about a minute and a half before the break. I'd love to know if you think just the information age and the fact that people can become more aware of this, because I would think there were people, like you were saying, there was corruption. There There were and probably still are people who would like to keep exploiting this for their own personal gain and not have a lot of people know about it. But just now that the research is widely available and consumers are becoming more aware, do you think that's really kind of helped this this shift and more uh, to have more transparency? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, 
this has been a research uh, of already 2009. So the last five years, we've been tracking this kind of tremendous trends in business. And there are really only three that we could point out that are determining the direction. There are more than three that are impacting business. But in terms of determining direction, uh, we could find in our research group only three. And one of them I already mentioned, which is declining resources connected to that directly and indirectly is a kind of follow-up trends, which is increasing expectations of all stakeholders. Mm. The less resources we have, the more stakeholders start demanding. But most importantly, both of those trends are fueled by the third trend, which is radical transparency. We've never seen this kind of transparency before in our business or in our social life. So surely it makes a huge difference. That's that's great. Yeah, I know there's places, I think, on the web where you can go and look at parts of the earth to, to see what glaciers are melting. Or I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any place to look for pollution. I also heard that there's a lot of garbage in space, and I don't even think we know what that could do. But is that, have you heard that? Is that true? Uh, well, we do have, um, the, a lot of garbage in space is compared to the zero garbage prior to our space programs in mm. mid-century. So in that sense, definitely, we do leave every kind of satellite you can imagine <laughs> yeah. orbiting indefinitely when the satellite is um, done with its uh, primary purpose. Mm. So in that sense, it's uh, a significant percentage compared to the zero baseline. Right. But it's definitely not anywhere close to the garbage we have on the ground. <laughs> it's a nice think it has probably has the least impact right now um, sure. but it just sort of to me speaks me so yeah it's probably results from from our our space activities um mm-hmm. nobody's intentionally throwing garbage out there uh, although i'm sure they've talked about it um but yeah the crisis is really here at home well again we're up on a break and uh, my guest today is nadia sekambaeva and we are talking about her new book Overfished Ocean Strategy, Powering Up Innovation for a Resource-Deprived World. And you can get more information at Nadia's website, overfishedoceanstrategy.com. And I'm Olivia, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? 
Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm back with my guest, Nadia Sekambaeva, and we're talking about her research and her new book, Overfished Ocean Strategy, Powering Up Innovation for a Resource-Deprived World. So, Nadia, maybe you can just share... Uh, a little bit about so we've covered a lot of things in the first segment and um, uh, it was you know probably not great so um, <laughs> sure um, sure so, yeah, well, usually happening usually this is the end of the kind of doom and gloom conversation our first part of the conversation was about what is the basic reality that we need to face um, whether we are working in business or we're working in any other sector of society and the basic reality is that we need to uh, recognize the scarcity of the present in which our business operates. Our intensity on the market is not only due to um, two different economic crises, is one of the most recent that started in 2008. It's not only um, due to um, heavy fighting in different parts of the world with limited resources. All of those things, of course, contribute but it is not a temporary thing that will come back to business as usual. We are talking about fundamental changes in the way our economy runs. And the linear economy where we mine, use the resource barely once and trash it um, at the end of its life, that linear economy is coming to the end for Sure is. We are running out of things to mine, and we are running out of things to trash. So the doom and gloom part of our conversation uh, is over, mainly because um, the exciting part of this work has been that this new reality is really launching a huge amount of innovation, globally, locally, however you look at it. I have not seen an industry, company size, or uh, region where this reality is not spreading completely new ideas of how business should run and how our new global economy might look if we start addressing the challenges that we're facing with the rapidly increasing prices of resources, with the new expectations and with the transparency, which we covered um, just a few minutes ago. Well, so a lot of companies for years have focused on green products and technologies. Um, so it, is this what you're talking about or are you talking about something different? <laughs> um, I am a kind of a recovering sustainability expert. Um, <laughs> it's like a recovering alcoholic of sorts. Right. Uh, I am really deeply thankful for the past um, 
13, 14 years that I've been working in the field of sustainability, which I entered by accident. (laughs) I am working in the field of strategy, and it just happened that um, in 2001, a number of companies in the U.S., 2002, actually, a number of companies in the U.S. asked to see if um, our group of uh, researchers can help and consultants can help with their sustainability challenges, which were their strategic challenges. So the move towards sustainability from uh, strategy was kind of accidental. Mm. My hope was, and in 2002, when we started this work, we could hardly find any examples of companies really productively um, working with this challenge. Productively, I mean, it's not a trade-off where we either make money at the expense of society and environment or we do something good for society and environment at the expense of the profit. Mm-hmm. So that is unproductive. In my book, the idea was, can we be in a productive space of what some call sustainable value, some call shared value, uh, where we are um, doing something positive, uh, net positive for society and environment, and that allows us to be even more uh, successful when it comes to business. So that move in the last 10, 15 years was truly tremendous, and I cannot just um, you know, spit all over it and say that was a waste of time and it was a horrible thing to do and green is dead. But I do have to admit that all the work that my colleagues, myself, and hundreds and thousands of people done in this area was simply not sufficient. Mm. So the movement of green economy, sustainable economy, um, eco products, and every other label you can attach to that has been extremely um, useful and uh, hopeful and at the same time comes nearly uh, not enough, not even close to what is needed if we look at the sustainability challenges we face. So in that sense, I'm not talking about green. Mm-hmm. If I look at traditional green products, and I can ask you a question now. Okay. <laughs> um, if you think about a green product, what normally comes to your mind? Well, I guess solar energy, maybe mm-hmm. electric, solar? electric cars, um, mm-hmm. clean or soap products, things like that. Sure, sure. Um, I will make it a little bit more specific. So everything you name is usually comes up in most people I research or question on it. So let me make it more specific. When you think about green shoes, eco shoes of some sorts, what comes to mind? How would you describe this product? So shoes, you say? Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a great question because I don't feel like I've ever been able to really get a pair of um, of green shoes, but I do, I would think that they would be ma- made at a fair wage and maybe of, uh, not using toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they would be beautiful, competitive to most designer brands? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Do you think they would be in terms of the price point, would they be price competitive? Probably not. <laughs> Would they be as well researched and performing as highly as the normal shoe, let's say Nike or Puma or Adidas would put a research effort into their traditional shoe? No. 
Mm-hmm. So you just answered uh, the question why I'm not talking about green products. <laughs> Majority of the world, and now we're talking about thousands and thousands of people being researched, interviewed, and also followed into the store. Absolute majority of the people, when we ask them what comes to mind when you think about green products, they will say exactly what you just say. Green products are, generally speaking, ugly, overpriced, and underperforming. Mm-hmm. And this is what we as industry created. Mm-hmm. We created an array of products that could be named uh, sometimes uh, validly so and sometimes simply PR <laughs> or brainwashed <laughs> or window dressed into the category of green. Mm-hmm. But we created a, a slew of products that were labeled green or sustainable in some way. And they probably did something good for the environment, but usually at the expense of price, quality, and design. And then we put this product on the market and we say, well, customers, you promised us in every research we ever done that we would um, actually get this product. We see research after research where consumers promise that they were willing to purchase green products even when they're priced higher. But when we actually follow these people to the store, very small percentage of them does. Why? Because customers are not stupid. <laughs> Who wants an ugly, overpriced, underperforming product? No amount of sustainability built in would cover for that type of inintelligence built well, into the product. So let me ask you, if if I or or people shopping for shoes got a brochure with the shoes that said, this is how many toxic chemicals were put into the water to make these shoes. Um, this is how much someone got paid, and these were the working conditions. Mm-hmm. Would Do you think, it sounds like we really have to change the consumer's uh, knowledge base. Does that make sense? Like, would, uh, could that happen? We do have to change the consumer knowledge base, and a lot of that effort is being done. There's a huge amount of really great efforts that has been done to change the understanding of what goes into creation of the shoe. That absolutely must happen. But even with that, um, we cannot replace um, um, a kind of beautiful vision for the basic lack of intelligence in the product. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is that there are companies and there are ways uh, of creating products that are definitely much less toxic, if not positive in their toxicity. So we do know products that can be actually eaten. They can give nutrition, blankets that can give nutrition to the babies who are sucking on them, uh, shoes um, that in production of which we actually purified water and on and on. So we do have this kind of product. But the new wave, the, the companies that um, were the subject of this book and the exciting part of the last few years of my life is that companies um, leave behind the idea of trade-off where green means that I will give you something good for environment and society, but it will be at the expense of quality price and design. Today, companies say, well, can we do something different? Can we actually make something that is excellent for environment and society and will cost us even less and will cost the customer even less and will give them exceptional extra value that we haven't seen in the past? And we see these companies and these products 
spraying up right and left. And these companies refuse to call their products green. Let me just give you one example. Oh, please, yes. uh, Since we started with shoes, I will stick with the shoes theme. This is a company all of us know. It's a German company, but it sells very widely in the U.S. and other countries, which is Puma. Mm. Puma sells sport shoes mainly, and it does other products, of course, in sport direction and um, wellness in general. And Puma is known for many different things it does with the shoes, but one tiny story that I adore has nothing to do with shoes and has to do with packaging. So traditional packaging, when we think about shoes, is this big paper box, carbon box, usually with corrugated material, which is more expensive and more difficult to produce. And that box is usually ships um, to protect the shoe and then comes to the store and that box goes into another bag, usually paper or plastic, for the customer to take the shoes home. So Puma asked itself a very simple question. Why do we spend so much time and effort to put in the shoes into the box, box into the bag, where both of them are usually discarded in the first two minutes of the customer arriving home? Mm-hmm. Where is intelligence in that? And they started working on a completely different packaging. They spent quite a lot of months and something like 2,000 prototypes to create a no-box box, which is what they call clever little bag. This is a packaging solution where a customer gets something at the end which looks like a reusable bag. They can pack their shoes in that bag when they're traveling on business or leisure or when their children go to school. So this is a reusable added value bag. Um, It uses significantly less, um, really measurably less, water, electricity, and every other product uh, to produce the shipping and protection packaging solution. It uh, ships much lighter, which saves significantly on transportation for the company and saves significantly on CO2 emissions for the world. And in every way, this is a a bag that is cheaper, smarter, um, more attractive, and and higher value for everyone involved. So these are the kind of things we're talking about. This is a significant breakthrough in the value for all, and there's no trade-off of any kind. There's no compromise, whether we're talking about value for the customer, value for the society, value for environment, value for business. All of the people end up getting more at the end, and we are dealing with a very real threat of resource decline, so it also protects the company in the long run. So, and just to notice the name, they didn't call it a green bag. They didn't call it sustainable bag. They didn't call it eco bag. They called it clever little bag because there's an intelligence built inside. So if the package is so intelligent, imagine what the shoe might be. Mm, that's great. And and I, I noticed on your website, you compare the linear old model that this is more circular, right? That it, sure, it, um, sure. So what happened is um, I didn't really plan to write this book. It was a a kind of accident from the previous research um, Mm -hmm. that was done in 2009 on the um, topic of embedded sustainability. So we were trying to understand what is the progression that companies go through, starting with a kind of complete zero attention to those global changes in their 
external environment that threatened the survival of the company, then to slowly beginning to understand, okay, how do I protect myself? Usually with some really poorly executed PR companies, uh, campaigns and other things. Then moving further towards um, trying to connect the survival of the company to the um, the kind of environmental social survival to the financial survival and introducing first products into the mix and then truly embedding sustainability into the strategy operations and products. So when that work was done, um, I had the chance to work with a number of companies who read that book and said, okay, how do we do it in our company? And once um, I started really making the rounds, I noticed this completely new category showing up. Mm. And this category was something I could not place in the previous continuum. This was a kind of quantum leap into something else. Um, just to uh, pick on, on the subject of your show. It was yes. a huge leap into some different reality. Mm. So um, after collecting some uh, large number of the cases similar to Clever Little Back and in different categories, um, I wanted to understand what is common between these companies. What if you were to kind of dissect or extract the principles that can help companies move in that kind of different uh, parallel universe mm-hmm. of going beyond green and sustainability altogether? Um, I noticed that there's some commonality, and the first one was this move from linear to circle. Wow. So, if we think about linear economy, we mine, we use, we trash. This is, of course, has been debated for a good 40, 30 years already. And most recently with a wonderful book, um, Cradle to Cradle, which is a very basic idea is that nature doesn't have linear economy. Mm. If we think about the most sustainable um, creature, (laughs) the most successful uh, sustainable system that we know, if we are trying to have companies and our companies span uh, a matter of hundreds, sometimes a little bit over years, then we have a system that's been around for millions of years. So in terms of its economic survival, it definitely knows how to survive. And that would be the planet as, as a whole. Planet doesn't have linear economy. It doesn't have waste. Right. When my body dies... And if it's put into the ground, it becomes a wonderful resource for a lot of microorganisms that can produce out of consuming this body a great fertilizer for the soil, out of which would grow vegetables and um, flowers and anything else necessary, which would be consumed by some animals and bees Mm. and whoever else that would be consumed again by next generation of humans. So there's this cyclical nature. Yeah. 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 Well, we're just up on a break, so I um I need to take that. But I, sure. I, I you know, I love this um this, this idea of that the the planet will take care of it itself, and if it means getting rid of us, you know, that's what yes. it will do. So I Absolutely. think you know we're in this to try to stay on the planet with the respect for the planet that it'll allow us, and um and it sounds like. This circular approach, which absolutely is what nature follows, is um, the way to look at business as well. So again, my guest is Nadia Zekambayeva, and we're talking about overfished ocean strategy, powering up innovation for a resource-deprived world. And we'll be right back.
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and we're talking about overfished oceans with Nadia Zekambaeva. And before the break, we were talking about some companies that are actually using kind of a circular theory or, or process around resource use and and how it can actually come back and do something positive for the environment. And so I know in your book, Nadia, you talk about these um, five essential principles for innovation. Mm -hmm. Could you share one of those and maybe give us some examples of companies that are using those? Sure. So the first and fundamental principle that is common between all of these companies, and so far I've been calling them overfished ocean strategy companies because I don't have a good name and nobody has a good name to Mm -hmm. mention this move beyond green and sustainability into something really much more substantial for the survival of the company and essential for the company. But the first one is probably the one that really matters, which is we go linear economy and entering the circular stage. So moving from line to circle is fundamental and it takes quite a bit of practice for companies. So if we think about this idea that nature doesn't have waste, our products and our services, our entire economy is not designed that way. So even if we try to create a circle economy this second, we simply are not able to reprogress, pre-program or re use most of the uh, raw materials that we use in our products. I'll give you just one example. Um, there's a wonderful company called Shore Industries. It's a carpet company. Most of you probably are sitting on Shore Industry Carpet right now. We've oh. been working on it today because it's one of the largest commercial carpet manufacturers in the world. The company, when it started thinking about, okay, how do we move towards circular 
production cycle were stuck with the very simple reality their carpet at that point was not recyclable. The bottom PVC of the carpet were contaminating the top nylon threads of the carpet in a way that cannot be recycled ever again. So um, tons and tons of carpet each year end up in the landfills. What they started with is the idea that they need to really rethink from the design point of view and come up with new chemistry so that the pieces can be recycled. And today, um, the show carpet tiles is one of this shining example of how quickly you can create a circular type of production model, but also how financially viable it is because you are using less and less of virgin raw material and basically pay for raw material once and infinitely uh, recycle it, <laughs> infinitely use it in your production cycle. Um, other companies are thinking about how do we create a total infrastructure for it. So there's a great company called Mad Jeans that allows you to lease your clothing, lease your jeans instead of buying them. Really? And what, <laughs> yeah. And what this company does they say well this is not about a uh, second hand this is not the idea that you will lease the jeans and then the next person will lease them this is an infrastructure for us as a company to control the raw material so the gene comes back to us and then we are able to reproduce it again and again and again so this is an infrastructural solution rather than um, a kind of actual lease. Um, same is a larger num large number of shoe companies are thinking about leasing shoes. Um, and again, most people I mention and they say, oh, this is so disgusting. Why would I ever do that? Um, it's not assumed that there will be a second use of the same shoe. This is a system to make sure that the raw material comes back to me as a producer so that I can reproduce that product again and manage that precious raw material from the beginning to end in an infinite circle. So let me make sure I understand. So you would then say, use the shoes and then return them for a refund of sort of yes. sort? Okay. Yeah. So this would allow you to, on one end, pay a very small fee um, um, per month. So, for example, Mud Jeans that I just mentioned allows you to rent your clothing for about five ninety five a month. And if you feel like this was a bad purchase, you can return it. But also, this is fundamentally an issue of bringing back the resource, mm. uh, which is the jeans themselves. This is a raw material. And anyone who worked in the jeans industry know how toxic the process of um, really making the jeans is, the coloring and the wash and all of the stages of jeans production is a very precious raw material. So the question is, can we bring back that raw material instead of sending it off to the landfill? Um, the lease model forces the customer to be connected to the company and to bring it back and have a financial incentive to do so. Interesting. Um, there are other companies who really try to create a large infrastructure for this kind of uh, new thinking. And even if we cannot create a full circle, we at least can extend the life of any product we create. So one of my favorites is a European um, invention called Flow2. This is an online platform that allows any company to lease any unused capacity that they might have. So you might have a company that has some uh, small um, tools 
uh, hanging around because they're not using them 24-7 or at least they're not using them 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have an excavator. Maybe you have one unused room in your big office. Maybe you have some time that your secretary is not fully booked and you would like to increase the capacity. But it's mainly for really heavy equipment and different type of equipment. Mm-hmm. So the idea is very simple. Why do we all need to buy large equipment which is extremely difficult to produce if you look at the linear economy and the value chain. Um, And then it just sits there idle. Why don't we create an opportunity to use that to the maximum capacity, but also create a source of additional income from asset sharing to the companies that own the asset? It's a completely different concept of creating a resilient community because then the community shares the same resources. Well, and that makes sense for just for people living. Um, I'm very drawn to living in a community because I don't need my own washer and dryer. I use it very rarely. So why would I want to mm-hmm. own one? Or even my car, I feel like I don't really, I work from home, so I don't really need it that much. If I had one that was available out of a fleet of cars that I could just use, um, I'd be quite happy. So I think mm-hmm. the, this idea that we all need to own everything is kind of, crazy as well and it's good to see that more and more companies are creating viable business models to get rid of those (laughs) to get rid of those those wasteful practices and more and more businesses are really interested in collaborative consumption of different kind which is definitely a step away from traditional green into um, a kind of more fundamental rethinking of the way we do business and the way we live. So, as so, you mentioned flow tube, I believe, is mm-hmm. mainly for heavy equipment. Um, are there any other companies doing anything like this, or is it just mainly well, in, an idea? No, in collaborative consumption, this another name for this has been sharing economy. We've seen a huge growth for sure. So here, the growth we've seen is um, companies like Airbnb that allows mm-hmm. anyone to share their home, um, Uber that allows people to share cars, uh, car sharing businesses of different kind. It's definitely on the rise. That's great. That's great. Um, well, we have a few minutes left. Are there any other great companies you'd maybe want to share that are doing uh, sure. some of this? So I'm, I'm, I usually have a collection of uh, my favorites, so I will mention one that I think is small and adorable, which speaks about the power of really small, small thinking. And this is a company that produces party favors and party products of different kind. Mm. And one of my favorite is confetti. So if you think about the value of confetti, how long does the value last? Mm-hmm. Usually it's a matter of seconds, right? Right. Um, Usually it's just about how long it takes to throw the confetti up in the air and make it fall to to the ground. But the creation of confetti is a very, very resource intense product. It's a paper usually or plastic of some sort. So this company called Throw and Grow Confetti decided to put seeds inside all of their confetti products. Which means that when you throw it up in the air and it's beautiful and it falls on the ground, you sweep it up, put it in the ground, and you have beautiful flowers growing in a matter of a few weeks. Small, (laughs) small, beautiful ideas. That's really interesting. And I'm imagining the paper then is is non-toxic and will 
of um, course, just kind of dissolve into the maybe even fertilize a little bit. Wow, that's that's really inspiring. So, so these are just lots of great ideas where people can translate. You know, if like right now, I I'd love to have an assistant, and I thought, boy, when you mentioned a secretary having a little extra time. I would be. I'd like to be able to go to a website and and look for somebody who has a few extra hours a week mm-hmm. that um, has the skills I need. So that that really makes sense. And um, uh, I live in Boulder, Colorado, where there's a lot of people doing the Airbnb or B&B. So that's really really fun. Well, so I just really enjoyed our conversation today, and um, I want to encourage people to go and look for your book on Amazon or go to your website. You, we did talk about five principles and you've shared the first one, which I think is so powerful. And just to encourage people to go and um, check out a lot of your writing because you say you've shared these you know, in, in other writings and mm-hmm. pick up your book to get all these uh, great examples. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners today? Well, I think the most exciting part for me is that this is not a story of doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. Neither it's a story of shaming businesses into doing something green because we must. Mm -hmm. This is a story of tremendous opportunity, of value for everyone involved, of innovation beyond anything I could imagine even five years ago. And I think this is the most exciting news for whether it's a business or society, whichever sector you come from, this is the most exciting news that we can get out of the slum and actually create a completely different economy we can all enjoy. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for being my guest today. I hope you'll come back and visit us again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. So next week, back by popular demand, my guests will be Simon and Maria Marais Robinson from Brazil, and we'll be discussing holonomics, developing authentic businesses and sustainable leadership. So what a great fit. You won't want to miss it. And for a full description of today's show, other upcoming shows, and a full listing of all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parrud, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.